With so many issues like mobility and energy prices affecting the auto industry, manufacturers and suppliers alike have to be prepared at the start of each year for almost anything. Today, we sit down with three chief economists to talk about what they're planning for in 2018. I want to thank you all for joining us on AutoLine this week. You know, for the last 11 years, we've invited the top economists in the automotive industry to come on the show and give us their outlook. We're doing it again today because joining us include Michael Jackson with the Original Equipment Suppliers Association, Emily Kalinske-Morris with the Ford Motor Company, and Mustafa Mahataram with General Motors. I want to thank all three of you for joining us here today. Mustafa, when I look out at the global automotive industry, it looks like everything is hitting on all cylinders. It looks like it's strong around the world. Have we ever seen a situation like this before? I don't think so. I think, uh, you know, we really are in a sweet spot uh, for auto sales. You've got all the economies growing, uh, you know, what I would call their trend rate. Oil prices are low. Interest rates are low. People are feeling much more secure about their jobs. All of those conditions are pretty much true across the globe, and you rarely see that. And that's why I'm so positive and confident that this strong sales space can continue into next year. Emily, you see it the same way, strong growth around the world, and how long does it last? There's no question things look really good right now, both for the economies around the world and for auto sales. I think the issue is that as you get to this point in the cycle, you start to have policymakers respond to those strong conditions. Uh, growth back to trend, inflation beginning to pick up a little bit, wage growth beginning to pick up. That's the signal to the folks setting monetary policy to pull back a little bit on the support that they've been providing the economies through the weak patch. So there used to be an expression about the Fed taking the punch bowl away from the party. They're starting to do that. And so the risk becomes, as you go through that adjustment, do they do that too soon? and you get a more abrupt slowing in growth than they would like to see, or do they wait too long and you see a little bit more inflation than you'd like to have? So the policy balance is really important at this point in the cycle, but assuming no such mistakes, I think we can see the party continue for, uh, for the foreseeable future. And Mike, what are you telling uh, the suppliers who belong to the OESA? What's your outlook that you're providing them with? Well. Yeah, we, we look at, we, we leverage information from our affiliate members, and, and so certainly we're looking at you know, a very strong level of both demand as well as production. Uh, coming off of last year's record levels of, of U.S. sales, uh, very strong, and we expect that's going to continue. But I think one of the key things that we like to, to emphasize to our members is the idea of being cautious, right? The idea of, of trying to prepare for and start to look at where we are in the cycle. Obviously, you know, last year, record level. So we're starting to, so, to say, you know, start to look at, you know, being cautious. Start to look at being careful. That, that's all. And so I think the idea is, you know, we're talking about a sustainable volume. And so from, from that perspective, you know, from the supply base, you know, certainly want to be, you know, prepared and then certainly ready. And so from, from this perspective, Perspective, you know, a very strong environment, but also one where you know being being careful and, and looking at those opportunities going forward. Emily, one of the reasons why car sales are going so well around the world is energy prices are pretty low. Uh, gasoline and diesel looks pretty good. What's your outlook? Do do we keep it like this or what? Well, we have seen a little bit of an increase in prices over the past couple of years. That's due in part to conditions on the supply side for crude oil. So we had OPEC, the oil producers in the Middle East, led by Saudi Arabia, cut back their production a little bit to try to allow prices to go up. That's offset by the fact that you have U.S. production 
in shale and other non-traditional sources that's still going strong. And in fact, as prices go up, it brings more of that into the market. So while I think we do have a slight firming trajectory in prices, you're going to have that natural offset between the Middle East producers and the U.S. producers that should keep prices in a pretty comfortable range for consumers. Mustafa, how do you see it going? I, I know when the fracking boom began a few years ago, some skeptics said, oh, by 2019, 2020, it's going to run its course. Uh, these these uh, fracking procedures, you know, give out after a while. What, what's your outlook? Are we going to keep this going or what? Well, you know, I, I've been a long time on record saying we're in a lower for longer environment. And the reason for that is the economics of fracking is very different than traditional oil production. In traditional oil production, let's say offshore Gulf, you'd find a field, which was an expensive proposition in itself, about a billion dollars, and then you took four years and a few more billion dollars before you could bring it to the market. With fracking, it's almost instantaneous. You know, so we saw last year, well, towards the end of 2015, when oil prices dropped sharply, all of a sudden fracking slowed down. As Saudi Arabia and Russia have succeeded in pushing up oil prices, U.S. fracking is back and very strong. And that sort of is why I think we'll see moderate oil prices going forward, is that the U.S. is obviously in the lead on fracking. But the other areas of the world, in particular Mexico and Argentina, which have very similar geology, and, you know, three to five years down the road, they will become significant players in fracking oil production. So... The traditional model where you had this very capital-intensive business where any shock would result in fairly volatile oil prices is much less so anymore because the fracking is a low capital but high marginal cost business. And so they can come in and out depending on the price that you're seeing. And Mike, as a result of this uh, cheap energy prices, we've seen a real shift in the marketplace. It's, it's not just because of low gasoline prices, but that's a big factor in that we see people abandoning passenger cars and getting into more and more crossovers and SUVs. Do you think that's going to continue? Absolutely. Uh, as Mustafa uh, indicated, you know, energy prices is certainly a big factor. But what we're seeing is that consumers prefer vehicles, prefer you know utilities. Uh, you know, certainly from you know a number of different reasons, right? Um, you know, higher seating position, um, you know, great drivability, uh, and, and certainly what we've seen here as well, more recently, you know, better fuel economy as well. And so this is uh, certainly something that's helped uh, a great deal. And so you know, consumers uh, value the products. And so manufacturers are now, you know, certainly increasingly expanding their product portfolios in these areas. Higher margin opportunities, you know, we've seen the passenger car market, you know, come under a lot of pressure, uh, down 10% year to date. Uh, margin per unit on the pass car is, you know, radically different than that of, you know, your, your utility or a, a pickup truck. So as a result, you're seeing manufacturers, you know, cater their portfolios, you know, in that direction. Emily, I got to believe that the product planning people are pulling their hair out over this sort of thing. In 2017, passenger car sales in the U.S. market alone dropped by nearly 700,000 vehicles. I mean, how do you plan for something like that? Or can you? Well, of course, the product planning cycle is pretty long. So responding to something that happens in 2017, that was baked quite some time ago. But it's been a trend underway for some time. So I think it's something that we and other manufacturers anticipated as we saw the shift beginning to take place. It's always hard to call you know, where the, that final resting point is going to be. 
but it's pretty clear that there was a structural shift, as Mike said, in consumer preferences with a little bit of a tailwind from low gas prices, and that seems to be something that's pretty well embedded in the marketplace now. What's your best guess? I mean, I, I want to say in the U.S. market, it's probably 65% truck market share, 35% passenger car. Does it go, how, how, like you said, how far down do, do pass cars go? That's a great question. And I think the other thing that blurs the line a little bit is that, you know, we had crossovers become, you know, a, a new niche uh, a few years ago. So the lines between those categories may continue to blur as well. The cars may look more like utilities, even if it's still technically a car or something that we haven't named yet. So I think there's lots of innovation till, still to take place in the product space. Mustafa, you ever see a market shift like we're seeing right now of people just walking away from passenger cars? Well, I mean, yes, we have. Because when you look, go back to any of these periods where we've had oil shocks, you know, people have moved very quickly to smaller cars away from trucks and larger cars. And then we've seen the reverse, you know, and in the auto industry, you've got to be prepared for it. You have to be somewhat flexible. The other aspect of the shift is it's a global phenomenon. I mean, when you look at China, they've shifted over to crossovers even faster than we did. And that has two impacts, obviously. It means China has been a fairly profitable market. But it's given the Chinese indigenous manufacturers an opportunity to really expand output. So if you look at the Chinese crossover market, the indigenous players are much more significant than they were in the passenger car space. And I think you'll see that trend continue. I mean, you're seeing that in India, you're seeing that in Europe, that everybody wants crossovers at this point. And it goes back to what Mike said, that people like the space, they like the high seating position. It's just much, offers much more utility than the traditional passenger car. And that, therefore, you, I don't think the shift has ended yet. Continue along those lines. I find that fascinating what you're saying, that the Chinese who really haven't been able to compete all that well against the established Western car companies are doing very well with crossovers. Why is that? Well, think about the typical American crossover or European crossover. Those were at the high end and they had lots of equipment plus U.S. safety and emissions requirements. The Chinese come in and say, we don't have the same safety requirements. We don't have the same emission requirements. And by the way, we've got a lot of first-time buyers who don't want all the bells and whistles that the you know, traditional suppliers are offering. So the Chinese crossovers are much more basic, but very good, offer the similar utility. I mean, GM's sub-brand in China is called Baojun. It's essentially leading the way for GM in China uh, because of the crossovers that we have under that brand. Mm -hmm. uh Another thing that we see happening in uh, the U.S. market is so many people have turned to leasing cars rather than buying them that we're, we're seeing a, literally a flood of cars coming off lease right now. I think in 2017, something like three and a half million vehicles came off lease, and the talk is we're going to see that grow to five million vehicles every year coming off lease. Mike, is this a concern for the industry? Is this something that you tell your members at the OESA they should be aware of? Certainly, we've talked about it. I mean, the idea is that, uh, you know, if we, we track the, the Mannheim Used Vehicle Value Index is something you watch very closely. And, and yet, at the, at the same time, used vehicle values have remained rather strong over time. And so, um, you know, given the fact that, um, you know, hurricanes, uh, uh, Irma and uh, uh, here in, in both in Florida and Texas, I mean, 
you know, the reality is that had a, uh, an impact helping to firm up uh, used vehicle values for, for passenger cars. You know, passenger car value had, used vehicle value for passenger cars had been falling, uh, and, and yet the reality is that this actually firmed up as a result of increased demand for the used vehicle market. Um, but it's certainly something we watch very closely because obviously um, the, an excess supply, uh, you know, again, any market, supply and demand. And so if there's an excess of supply, then ultimately that results in, in uh, you know, a, a deep uh, discount in terms of you know, pricing power. And so that's something that we want to be careful of. Yeah, Emily, same question. And as you know, there's a, a study out there that says, wow, we're going to see car sales really start to drop off in 2018 and start to nosedive in 2019 and even get worse after that because of all these cars coming off leases. Do you see this as a cause for concern? I think it's really important when you think about the off-lease issue to think about the whole ecosystem around vehicle sales in the U.S. So if you have tunnel vision and you're just looking at a 17 million plus U.S. new vehicle market and you think there's three and a half million or more off-lease vehicles you know, coming into that space, uh, that could sound a little bit panic-inducing. But you have to keep in mind that we have a used vehicle market in the U.S. that's over 40 million vehicles sold annually. And so three and a half million vehicles coming into that space is a little bit less worrisome. The used vehicle market has also become much more efficient in recent years. So you're not just going down to the lot at the end of the street to find your vehicle. You have access to a whole inventory online. And so that's helped to support the demand for used vehicles. People see the value in those. They know the quality of vehicles is getting better and better. So they still have lots of usable life in them. And if you can match the tastes and you know not be limited to a small selection of local used vehicles on the market, that helps to lubricate that whole system and so that flow between the new and the used market can function uh, pretty efficiently. Yeah, Mustafa, how do you see it? Very similar to what Emily said. You know, relative to the size of the used car market, three and a half to five million is not a big number. And as long as those vehicles originally weren't sold instead, you know, at very subsidized rates of what we call subvented uh, leasing, then you've got an economic proposition. and with the improved efficiency of information and the durability of vehicles. You know, there are a lot of people that are willing to buy those that otherwise may not be in the car market. So I think I'm much less concerned about that. I, I still think we're in a 17 million world. As long as the underlying ec economy remains strong, I'm very comfortable with an outlook that's right around 17 million. And what do you think of uh, the issue that Emily just raised, that with technology, there's far more transparency in the used car market where you can bring a vehicle to the true point of demand and not just have to discount it? Do, do you think that's all affecting it? <clears throat> oh, ver very much so. I mean, one of the most famous articles in economics was called Market for Lemons. The person who wrote that actually got a Nobel Prize for that because when you used to go into the traditional used car market, especially recent vintage used cars, you had no idea what you were buying. Was it the person selling a recent vintage car selling a lemon to you? And therefore, you heavily discounted the price. Now, <clears throat> with all the improvements, with all the new players in the used car market, that's not a fear anymore. So used cars are considered an alternative to new cars by a certain segment you know, that has an affordability constraint, but it's also improving the market. <clears throat> so I think, you know, some of the analysts that are pointing to this coming wreck, I think are way over-exaggerating the 
Hey, another thing, General Motors has got this car sharing service called Maven. Mm -hmm. And my understanding now is GM is starting to take cars off lease and put them into this car sharing service, taking care of at least a little bit of the problem right now. Do Do you think this is something that could really grow to be significant? Well, there are two different parts of it. Maven is primarily you know, new vehicles that people can rent from GM by the hour or day or week. We also have what we call Maven Gig, which essentially takes these used vehicles and rents it out to <clears throat> drivers for, let's say, Uber or Lyft. And so, yeah, that's expanding the market for the used vehicles or recent vintage you know, return vehicles. Emily, do you think that all this ride sharing and car sharing is ultimately going to affect new car sales? I mean, after all, if 16 or so people can share one car, it would seem that we could pull a lot of cars off the road. Yeah, you would think, and that may be the case. You may have fewer cars on the road in an environment where a lot of people decide to adopt a ride sharing model. But as you said, those vehicles are going to be shared by a lot of people, so they're going to be getting a lot more miles on those vehicles a lot more quickly. And so you may not have as many vehicles on the road, but you're going to have to turn them over much more quickly. You may have to replace a vehicle you know, every one to two years if it's in that kind of a service versus you know, three, five, ten years for a vehicle that's owned by a single individual and driven you know, 12 or 15,000 miles a year. So I think there will be an impact on the market, but it's not clear that it's necessarily negative. Yeah, Mike, I guess your members would love this kind of a scenario, right? In the sense that if cars are used a whole lot, they're going to have to have replacement parts, and you've got members who build those replacement parts. Sure, Uh, I I think the reality is though, is that uh, there's a lot to to play out, right? And so the time frame as well is is something that's also interesting to to look at. But I think uh, ride sharing is something that historically we've looked at as as being something that would necessarily offers the potential to to limit, the number of vehicles that would be demanded, but at the same time, uh, ride hailing opens up the door for significantly higher levels of usage and so significantly higher incremental uh, volume or sales. And so as a result, we think at this point in time that there's um, certainly uh, offsetting effects and so you know, still a, a very strong environment to, to this end. There's a number of studies out there that say by 2030, car sales are going to crash because everyone's going to be sharing. Is that an outlook you share? No, no. I mean, at this point in time, and look, I, I think, you know, obviously uh, there's, there's a lot to, to, to consider, you know, in a you know, long-term time frame like that. But at, at the end of the day, we're, you know, there's a, a, lot of, uh, a lot that we continue to, to look at and evaluate. But no, we're looking at, a, you know, certainly the implications. But again, you know, to this end, um, we would expect that with new business models, opens up additional opportunity, additional mo- more miles traveled, and, and so as a result, certainly you know, stronger underlying uh, demand from that perspective. Yeah, are you worried, Emily, about uh, car sales crashing in another decade or so? I mean, I think we haven't solved the business cycle yet, so certainly we'll see some ups and downs in sales, but I'm not really worried about sales crashing specifically because of new models of mobility. We're still talking about people moving around in something that I think has four wheels and doors and is going to be you know, made by somebody who knows how to make vehicles. So again, it goes back to the question of you know, how many vehicles you have on the road, how quickly you're turning them over. And fundamentally, since this is a show with a bunch of economists, right, it's an economic concept and it's a pretty simple one. If we're talking about ride sharing uh, or other forms of new mobility making vehicle transportation 
either less expensive per mile or more efficient or otherwise more attractive, it should mean that people will want more of it, not less. Exactly right. It should. So, so what, what do you think? Yeah, th think of the parallel. We've had timeshare for vacation homes for a long time. Did that kill the second home market? No, because, I mean, I don't want to share my condo with everybody else. So I have my condo if I can afford it. But for those people that necessarily couldn't afford a standalone second home, timeshare is a good option. Well, for some, it's a good option. Others, I think, get conned into it. But the, the point being, it really expanded the market for vacation homes. As Emily said, if you can unbundle the cost of driving, and so you, you know, people can pay for it by the hour or day or whatever, that's going to expand the demand for that product. So I don't know which way the balance will be, whether it's an, how big an addition it is, but clearly almost anybody that's looked at this model has concluded the amount of miles driven will increase dramatically with the, with the you know, ride-sharing model. Yeah, we may have uh, fewer cars on the road, but boy, they're going to be on the road, not parked someplace, I right. think is what you're saying. And continue with that. What, what do you mean unbundling? Explain that concept. Okay, when you buy a car right now, you get it. You know, you have it for three years, five years, whatever. By unbundling, you say you sell the car to somebody who then rents it out by the hour or whatever. And that way you can command a much higher overall price or revenue stream from that car. And I think that's a model that, you know, is really appealing to a lot of people, especially when you get into the urban areas where the cost of parking, the cost of insurance and everything is really high. You can avoid all that by essentially having re rental cars available to you very quickly. So for instance, GM is, <clears throat> you know, signing business agreements with rental property owners in New York where part of you, when you rent a you know, apartment, you also get access to four or five hours of car per week. And that's a great way to expand GM's presence in dense urban areas where we're not very strong. Emily, in 2017, the year started out slow, car sales were slowly sinking, then by the end of the year, it started to pick up. And you know, maybe some of that was the, the hurricane damage that cars had to be replaced. But the economy's running pretty strong right now, too. What's your outlook for 2018 in the U.S. market? Well, I think, you know, as we said, we're, we're in the late stages of a cycle. So I'm not sure how much additional upside there is to sales at this point in time. But clearly, with good economic fundamentals, good job and income growth, gradually rising interest rates, maybe a little bit of an increase in gasoline prices, it's still a very supportive market for vehicle sales. So I think 2018 probably looks pretty similar to 2017, hopefully without the hurricanes. Yeah. <laughs> right. Mike, what are you telling your members? What, what should their outlook be for 2018? Yeah, we're, we're right around the you know, 17 million unit mark. I mean, ultimately, you know, the, the high 16s, you know, 17, ultimately what it comes down to is a bit of quality, the quality of demand uh, relative to uh, the overall market. I mean, uh, you know, we were talking about a, a richer mix, right? So, you know, continued richer mix of product. And so uh, overall that bodes very well for, for the supply base. Uh, and and uh, you know the the outlook as a whole, uh, higher content levels, you know, um, certainly uh, more um, 
you know, a, a richer mix, also from the perspective, of, from a branding perspective as well. You know, luxury continues to, to account for a growing share as well. So, you know, all of these factors you know, bode, bode quite well. Mm -hmm. uh, Mustafa, one of the questions I have is, why did car sales even go down in 2017? And I ask this because GDP was up, uh, incomes were up, employment was up, consumer confidence rock solid, and yet car sales started to go down. Why? Well, th think about it. We were at an all-time record. In a mature economy, it's hard to keep selling at all-time record paces. You know, we're only talking about sales this year being off by 1% one one or so from an all-time record. That's not surprising. I mean, any economic recovery you see, as you begin to hit, hit the top, as Emily mentioned, you're going to have ups and downs, small amounts over there, depending on what's going on in the economy. You know, you get cold weather. You may not get as many people buying cars. And... That goes back to your original question. We've had a real problem with seasonality. So if you look at the last three or four years, the first quarter, you know, has been weak both from a car sales perspective as well as from the economy perspective. I would say that's a failure of seasonal adjustment rather than real change. So, you know, hopefully BLS will work it out there. They've been playing with it for quite some time now. And... <clears throat> but I'm I'm very very comfortable with the 17 million mark that for 2018. 2018, yeah. yeah. Given the underlying yeah. economy. And Emily, for the rest of the world, continued growth. How do you see it? Yes. Yeah, so we're actually in a really favorable stage in terms of the global cycle, as uh, Mustafa mentioned at the outset. We have the developed markets, not just the U.S. but also Europe performing very well, and then some of the emerging markets that saw a lot of headwinds and, in fact, very severe recessions in some cases, like in Brazil and Russia, those markets are starting to turn around as well. So it really is a very um, synchronous global upturn right now. Mike, all your members uh, and the OESA is based in North America, but your members are global companies. So what's, what's your outlook for the rest of the world? Well, I think you know what we're looking at is a very strong environment here, both from a production standpoint. You know, again, uh, last year record levels of production, right? 17.8 million units. Now down a little bit this year. We're looking at you know closer to uh, you know a 17.3 million unit, 17.2 million unit level of of, of output for North America. For North America, yeah. But but as a result, one of the key drivers as well has been exports. So strength of export demand has been a key driver for for exports as well. And so that you know, and again, we talked about the idea that utilities. Um, crossovers and utilities, uh, that type of product set in that type of product mix is, is being demanded in a much broader range of markets. And so that has certainly helped uh, as well. And so, you know, the, the market as a whole, very strong, very positive, again, rich mix, but then also favorable in terms of from an export perspective, let alone uh, local demand as well. Yeah. Uh, look, I, I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap this up at this time. Very interesting discussion. I want to thank all three of you. Thank you for being here today. Thank you. Thank Always you. a pleasure, John.